I think a second round of champagne will make it sound better. Yeah, if we can do another... It's his idea. If we can do another flight of champagne, that would be great. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of Cinema Salem. I'm Alex West. With Andrea Sudasani. And uh, yeah, we are here to uh, do our kind of annual, well, semi-annual, but now back into an annual uh, live show here at Salem Horror Fest. I like to think of it as annual. I like to think of it as a residency. Yeah, yeah. Kate keeps trying to not invite us, and then we just keep showing up. And... Um, as long as your country keeps letting us in, we'll keep coming back. <laughs> We're always surprised. Yes. <laughs> um, but we, uh, we have a lot to talk about today. So you, you all just saw the blood on Satan's claw. Woo! How do you feel about it? <laughs> They've said all they need to say. <laughs> we got a woo, uh -huh. and then we got some <sighs> sigh slash groan. You know. That's exactly, I think, kind of where we are. Yes. We'll um, get to that. First. I feel like we need a bit of a preamble here. Yeah. I would like to start by saying that my exposure, my real exposure to Blood on Satan's Claw came um, in uh, September, October of 2021, when Rue Morgue 202, it was our annual... Halloween double issue, so a big fado, and uh, and Kayla's box set was coming out. It's time for a folk horror special issue, and so we interviewed Kayla, we interviewed Robert Eggers, we interviewed uh, Andy Pasiorek, we interviewed a whole bunch of people to learn all about folk horror, which was something that I knew something about. We've done episodes on it, but it's a slippery term. It's tricky to really bend your head around, and. It, Obviously, in doing my research for that and in our discussion, we kept talking about the Wicker Man, the Witchfinder General, and Blood on Satan's Claw. And I hadn't seen Blood on Satan's Claw. I hadn't seen it. But when it's lumped in with those other two movies, I already like it. Furthermore, we got a submission of beautiful artwork that was Linda from Blood on Satan's Claw, and we put it on the cover. So you can file that under the mega poser files that I put an image on the cover when I hadn't even seen the fucking film. But I was okay with it, because like I said, this is, this is, that, if that is a holy trifecta of this subgenre, it has my seal of approval. So I didn't see it for the first time until a couple of weeks ago. And if you listen to our last episode, you know this is the first time neither of us had seen a film going into it. Um, first time ever in 10 years? Yeah. Holy shit. We're not doing it again. <laughs> Tell you that much. And in another historical first, I started my research before Alex did. I couldn't fucking believe it. Yeah. So I assumed that she was way ahead of me, as she usually is. And uh, I'm just like, excited for Andrea to carry this one. Have you seen the movie? And I went, woof, yes. Have you? She's like, I'm watching it tonight. And I was like, oh, shit. Shit. Very sensitive to spoilers, very sensitive to voids trailers and all that, and I you didn't want to taint it with my woof. But you had woofs of your own. Oh, I got lots of woofs. But I feel like we should dive in. Should we, should we just start with the synopsis? Has anyone else, like, did anyone else have a first time experiencing it this morning? Oh, okay, okay. 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 So that's reassuring, because you're all horror fans. You're all hardcore horror fans. You probably had a similar experience that this is going to be great. It's almost like... The, good, the two good ones of the Unholy Trilogy of British folk horror we see, right. and then the other one, we're just like, it's like iconography. We put it on the cover of magazines, and we try not to think about it too much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so we're going to start, as we always do, with a synopsis for the folks at home who did not have the privilege of seeing it here at Cinema Salem. At Salem I haven't heard this synopsis yet, and I'm so excited. <laughs> there are conservatively 89 characters with speaking roles in this film. <laughs> It's, uh, it's only three paragraphs. <coughs> Here we go. Set in 18th century England, the film concerns a small village where a farmer named Ralph accidentally digs up a strange skull with tufts of fur. It so happens that a local judge is in town, so he asks them to come take a look, but the remains have disappeared. That same night, Peter Edmonton arrives to visit his aunt with his young fiancée, Rosalind, who is forced to sleep in the attic for propriety. <coughs> 
She's attacked in the night, just wait, and rouses the household with her screaming and emerges the next morning apparently insane and with a monstrous claw for a hand. She attacked it. <laughs> are you laughing because it's funny or are you laughing at my selective? No, I think it's just that's what Andrea wakes up every morning, slightly hysterical. There's a new claw. Uh -huh, uh -huh. In the attic for propriety. Um, Peter also stays in the attic one night and is similarly attacked and somehow winds up cutting off his own hand in the process. As it happens, some local children have collected those remains from the field and are playing with them, leading to some disappearances and abrupt personality changes, particularly for preteen girl Angel, who emerges as their leader. After trying unsuccessfully to seduce the local pastor school teacher, she accuses him of assaulting we'll her, leading to his arrest and being blamed for the rash of disappearances and murders. As the rest of the film unfolds, Ralph, his mom, and the local doctor realize that there's something supernatural afoot, which they share with the judge. After a local woman, Margaret, is swarmed by men and accused of being a witch, a patch of fur is discovered on her body, with, which the doctor removes and brings to the judge's evidence. I sound insane. Sure enough, Margaret is part of Angel's cult performing ritual masses to the demon Behemoth. They pronounce it Behemoth or somewhere. Yeah, it's also like it's the fucking devil. I'm saying Behemoth. The judge and his mob of torch-bearing villagers ch chase Margaret to Angel's lair where they interrupt a ritual just in time to save Ralph from some sort of furry transformation. The judge impales the demon on his sword, releasing the others from his influence, but not before Angel is impaled by a villager's pitchfork. The end. Yes. Is that the movie you saw? Okay. Just checking. So I, I just love that it starts with like, oh, the, the children have uncovered this, the bones in the ground, and here we are in 2023 when like your country's trying to ban TikTok. And it's like, if you ban TikTok, those kids are going back to the fields. Because you're already passing weird, weird child labor laws, and they're going to dig up these fucking bones again, and damn. This is, this is how it starts. Right. First they come for our TikTok, and we said nothing. Now, there is something of an explanation for what we've all just seen. The reason why it feels like four movies smashed into one is because it pretty much was. This film was originally conceived as an anthology film of loosely connected stories set in a Victorian-era village, where one story involves an evil aunt locking a woman up in her attic, another segment was about kids finding a monster carcass in a field, and another about a man cutting off his hand when it's possessed by a demon uh, a la Evil Dead. So these were all smashed together into one story by uh, director Pierce Haggard, um, hence why his credit in the um, his credit in the credits great his credit uh, is contributing additional material to Robert Wynn Simmons' original screenplay, um, with the addition of Margaret's dunking scene, of course, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later, and not so subtle nod at Witchfinder General, which was tremendously successful. So let's throw that in there because what the hell, this film doesn't make sense anyway. Yeah, and these were all coming out of uh, the British co production company Tygon. And Tygon was you know, making films in the late 60s and into the 70s, uh, at the time when hammer horror was becoming a really big thing. And Tygon felt that hammer horror had a real monopoly on the whole like gothic, eerie, uh, Victorian-era kind of deal. So they were like, okay, we'll eschew that, and then we're going to go 17th century and stick there, and we'll kind of do these weird, bright, sunny films. And uh, so that's where they wound up. I also think it's notable to mention that of the you know, unholy trilogy, which Woodland Stark and Days Bewitched uh, certainly introduced to me as this proper film trilogy, is that this is the only one with actual supernatural elements within it. The other two, uh, Wicker Man and Witchfinder General, are all about conviction and belief. There isn't, you know, you're kind of like, uh, those islanders might have been right to kill that man, but we don't know. Here we actually see Behemoth or the Devil or the Claw, we see all this stuff that is like, oh, it is supernatural. And I think some of that supernatural conclusiveness within this film is what makes this, to me, one of the most conservative films I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Because it's realizing the horror, and it's not kind of in this gray area where we can kind of reinterpret, we can reimagine, and we can kind of reclaim it. This is so fucking, like, it's so fucking. There's a good guy, and there's a bad guy, and the bad guy is the devil, and the good guy is the mob. How are you gonna read that as anything but conservative? Yeah, and I was also, almost hoping you would. 
<laughs> Could you imagine if like oh, the audience had completely just been like, this is not a conservative film, and we've been running with pitchforks at the end? <laughs> Toronto podcast ends in violence. <laughs> so let's get the uh, foundational stuff out of the way. Let's talk folk horror. Now again, we have talked folk horror before. We did an episode on The Wicker Man. I think that was more in the context of the matriarchy. Yeah. Uh, Witchfinder General was in the context of so witchcraft. Yeah, that was the witches episode. So you know, again, um, going back to Woodlands Dark and, and and Days Bewitched, I think I think Kayla does a really amazing job of unpacking the term and making it a little bit more understandable. <laughs> Kayla updated all of her thoughts in the keynote speech that I was like, oh God, there's more stuff. Stop! I thought I understood it. I'm dying. Um, but basically, I just wanted to lay out the common perception that these films involve pagan rituals, witchcraft in a rural setting. Um, but what really stuck out to me about that article that Kayla had noticed was, um, was that folk horror is set in an isolated rural environment, and it deals with older belief systems that have only persisted due to that isolation. And I thought that that was a really interesting thing to consider. And again, I brought that into my Q&A with Tony Todd. Like, okay, that, that broadens the scope to include other films that deal with ho- uh, folklore as long as they deal with isolation. And isolation can be anything from rural, urban, to segregation, to class. It broadens it, but in a useful way, I think. Yeah, and it's such a malleable term. Like, even rewatching Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched for, for this episode, I was just struck with, I kind, I think I have a grasp on what folk horror is, but I'm also very open it to being a ton of other different things. And I thought Kayla's keynote uh, the other night was incredible. And it was so good because I think she, uh, I really got that she was distinguishing between the colonial empires and how they can create folk horror and the horror kind of stems from the folk because they are countries that have empires and they colonize other, other places. And then I think she used the examples of like Poland and Japan who are not colonizing nations. So when they do folk horror, it's emerging from within. It's about, you know, amulets and creepy things that are there. It's less like blamey and creepy and conservative. And I think that's important to note because um, Adam Scoville, who uh, wrote a pretty seminal book, and especially if we kind of take the original Unholy Trilogy of British Folk Horror, and his book is called uh, Folk Horror, Hours Dreadful, and Things Strange. And he wrote about the subgenre uh, that it has a stark ability to draw links between oddities and idiosyncrasies, especially within post-war Britain. And if you listen to our last episode, um, where... That's a Britain, last two episodes. Yeah, you know, my ancestry, it gets there. Um, But as we go into the 1950s in England, post-World War II, the empire is in decline. It hasn't gotten better. But it was in serious decline. However, the working class, through government subsidies and everything else, like the way uh, technology and things were emerging, was beginning to actually have a kind of decent life. And this is really interesting because in America, this is like, uh, you know, the golden age of America. And in England, you have an inkling of that, but it is such a class-based society that as, you know, the working class was becoming more comfortable, as the pill became available, as it was swinging 60s, and then you get to the 70s with an economic downturn, it becomes like there is more suspicion of this working class that is enjoying more freedoms, that is enjoying more stuff, and then everyone starts to kind of become a bit nervous about it. What are they doing outside of our scope of seeing and being able to monitor them if they have their own independence happening? Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't go here, did you? No. Okay, you're still up there? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, so I was hoping that would dovetail more nicely. It's okay. Oh, it's going to be a bit of a letter. Whoa. No, no, no. no. I just, it, it, it's up to me what to make what, the transition. Want, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I hate it when we fight. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about um, the modern revival. I mean, we're going to talk about this film in context, but I feel like we do need to mention that folk horror is experiencing a bit of a moment. It was a moment that, you know, I think inspired Kayla's documentary, the box set, the issue of Rumorg, certainly, and, you know, the emphasis in this festival. And, um, you know, in doing those interviews for Remorg, um, there were a lot of kind of theories, and one of them is that we're experiencing future shock, that technology is happening so quickly and we're so overwhelmed by it that maybe we're inclined to uh, look back 
at least, and perhaps even romanticize simpler ways of being, more empowered ways of being, being more connected with the earth. But further to that, uh, Kayla notes that youth culture always tends to take an interest in the occult and counterculture. And, um, and we can observe trends like uh, crystals in tarot is also having a moment. Obviously, we're in which city we're surrounded by it now, but I think you guys can remember a time where that wasn't the case. There was still a lot of superstition around it. Power to the powerless. And so, like, when I think of modern revival of folk horror, I think of the craft, obviously, I think of the witch, I think of even, like, pie whacket and stuff that deal with teenagers. And Blood on Satan's Claw similarly deals with teenagers. And so I was so inspired by that, I found an article called Satanic Tourism, Adolescent Dabblers and Identity Work, which I will add in the show notes. And basically, satanic tourism is when teenagers play with satanic sigils and occult activities in a harmless way, just to kind of test adult authority, experimenting, breaking rules, really typical teen stuff. Um, Have you ever heard of legend trips? No, I think we might have talked about it before. It it rang a bell. It's visiting sites of alleged hauntings in your neighborhood. Like maybe there's like a witch rock or a devil's tooth or a haunted house or something where something went down. Um, Oh my God, are those real things? Those sound awesome. (laughs) Devil's tooth? I'm picturing it outcropping. Maybe I made it up. Maybe I conjured it. Like a cliff. Yeah, like a haunted cliff. Yeah, just like an obelisk that we push our exes off of. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, like teens would would show up and hang out at this local spot, and in the course of visiting the legend and as part of the play of enjoying the legend, maybe they act out something. Maybe they do a little silly ritual thing in a very harmless way and then in a hilarious self-fulfilling prophecy type thing any remnants any shit that they leave behind um mainstream media will take that as evidence of actual satanic activity taking place so we'll talk a bit more about satanic and uh, satanic panic and moral panic a little bit later but uh, I, i think it's really worth mentioning that you know adolescence I think we tend to think of adolescence as rebellious in the more modern age because everything is changing so rapidly. And, you know, we talk a lot about adolescence uh, as a stage on, in the podcast and just, um, you know, kids looking at the adults and seeing the future and being like, no, thanks. I need to change this. I need to challenge this. And I think it's an important reminder that that's actually pretty eternal. And I think it's so interesting, especially how this film kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about it, so I won't dive into it, but the way this film vilifies exploration and imagination of self and creates the like most nightmarish version of it because I don't know about you but like when I was like a teen it was like trying different stuff on figuring it out like playing with it and trying to find my identity through that mm-hmm. and so it's I like that there's this kind of um there's a real thing about that mm-hmm. you know that we are all just kind of playing and you try it out you don't know until you try right did you do that stuff fuck yeah I did we did it at my bachelorette party yes we did Yes, we did. We did um, a whole fucking incantation. But like when you were a teenager? I didn't have a lot of friends when I was a teenager. Wow. <laughs> you could hear a fucking pin drop. <laughs> but look at all the friends I have now. <laughs> and Andrea. <laughs> I definitely called the corners. I definitely laid the feather stiff as a board. And, you know, in a different time, in a different place, with different parents who would have walked in on that, I might have had a different life. Oh, like you would have been sent to the insane asylum, which the bride is sent to. Yep. Like I wouldn't have turned out a weirdo goth for a magazine editor. <laughs> oh, anyway. Uh, what's next? Do you want to talk judge? Let's talk about the judge. The only character that actually needed to have a wig. <laughs> The wig work in this film. I am fascinated by the judge. The judge is the second big question mark that turned into an exclamation mark when I was doing my research. The first being the fact that uh, that it was an anthology. You know, like you watch it and the credits are rolling and you're like, huh? And then I was like, okay, the anthology thing. And the other big okay was the judge. And it doesn't save the film, mind you, but it definitely made it a lot more interesting. I felt that there was a certain gravitas to his whole, here's to King James III. Did you guys get that sense? And did you like me? Like, okay. King James III, what the fuck ever. Did you clock that right away, being the pretty Britter? Yeah, I was like, it's the glorious revolution they're referencing. 
I did not. I had to find this in an article. JK, I totally have to look that up. Oh, you yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did write it down to be like, research this later. I have a feeling you and I read the same article about 17th century in film, patriarchy, oh, That's just the Wikipedia page? Because that's what I did. I can't do that. Oh my god, is this Freaky Friday? Am I going to drop a link to the article? Is this, yeah, I'm imitating you at this point. You should have been wearing taller heels. Yes. So let's talk about King James III. The fact that the judge is toasting to King James III reveals him to be a loyal and religious outsider in Restoration England. And the story behind that is um, Blood and Satan's Claw takes place at the very end of the century after the Glorious Revolution, aka the Bloodless Revolution, because most of the bloodshed involved happened in Ireland, um, of 1688 and the deposition of King James II. Now, King James was Roman Catholic, which was a really big deal because the vast majority of England at the time were Protestant, but he was a war hero and people were okay with him being in charge as long as he maintained the primacy of the Protestant Church of England and the Church of Scotland. Eventually, his policies about tolerance for Catholicism became a problem, and there was a coup leading to his exile and the transfer of power to his Protestant daughter, Mary II, and her husband, William III, who was also James's nephew. That's a whole other thing. Anyway, in the end, this whole fiasco... I mean, you can see that genealogy with the king who's about to be fucking... Right? Quarantined no one's surprised. <gasps> also his nephew and his cousin and his father. Um, my sister, my daughter, my sister, my daughter. But the, the biggest takeaway from that whole situation, as I understand it, and happy to be corrected about British history as always, is that uh, it permanently established Parliament as the ruling power of England. Uh, it, it represented a shift from absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. And I was kind of like, oh, is the judge a fucking badass? Is he a bad bitch rebel? <laughs> no, he is just the new embodiment of the patriarchy. Um, this is the movement away from, like, this is when we're getting into the Enlightenment. So movement away from the kind of overarching religious beliefs that were governing a lot of this kind of pseudo-government that was happening at the time. And then after the Glorious Revolution, as Andrea mentioned, that's when the Parliament becomes a thing and the monarchy begins to shift into more of the, like, Mickey and Minnie Mouse that we know them to be now, except super racist and fucking awful. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, and it, it's, it's, um, it's interesting about the judge because there's a denial of self-interest. Uh, <laughs> Andrea has no problem with the denial of self-interest. But there was one part of clock, and it's in the scene when he is, he's doing the toast, and he's about to do the toast, and he says to Peter... Um, uh, who actually has a very similar hairstyle to me right now, which is kind of shocking. Um, he says to Peter, um, uh, it's something along the lines of like, you know, I, I knew your aunt and we were friends. And I was like, uh, okay, okay, calm, calm down 17th century England. But they, it was like this total implication. They were like DTF. And he's just, but he's been like, no, me, myself, and this like governing ability that I must have to like govern over the folk. And I traverse this land and I, I solve problems and I say who's a witch and who is not. And I do this thing. So he's this new patriarchal daddy. He's just not necessarily indebted to God, which isn't real. Um, actually, the fun fact, my British family is very, very Catholic. They're not Protestants. There you have it. Like it, it does kind of inform some of the judges. Like yes, he's obviously a huge hypocrite, DTF with the ant. But when it comes to little Missy up in the attic, propriety, propriety. I also found it interesting how he was kind of like, oh no, we don't, we don't read witchcraft texts. We don't do that. It's like, well, I have one right here. It's really. Let's tie this fucking girl up and ask her some fucking questions. Yeah. And then in the end, when he's leading this whole mob with literal torches and pitchforks, like he's a judge. This isn't a legal system. This isn't a, this isn't even a witch trial as 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 transparently nonsense as which trials were. You didn't even bother with that. And it's also I think important to note that when you look back at something like Witchfinder General, 
Matthew Hopkins, as played by Vincent Price, is very clearly the fucking villain. And this is like, look at this brave man in his fantastic wig doing this for the community. I was what? What's that? I want the wig. You want the wig? (laughs) Alex, give me your scalp. (laughs) That's a Gaylord's reference. Oh, sorry. Gaylord's of Darkness. Any Gaylord's of Darkness? Do you know? So we've been on Twitter. We've been on Twitter. And we've been saying, and once a couple times, and we've been saying, maybe next year we could do a little, like, back, Gaylords of Darkness, Evolution of Horror. So if you want that, very kindly mention this online, but maybe not right away because they're very busy right now here at Salem Horror Fest. But I think... Me, Andrea, Mike from Evolution, Stacy and Anthony from Gaylords. I would die. We should party. Yes. We should fucking party. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Back back to um, other wigs. Other wigs. <laughs> back to the motherfucking judge. Uh, I, I think that's all I had to say about him. Um, I, I just found it very interesting that there are villains, and I think, you know, for those of us who were familiar with folk horror, I remember I was watching the film for the first time with my Twitch community, in Discord, and uh, and everybody was kind of like, he's he's going to be the head of the cult, for sure, uh, because that's what we've come to expect. So the fact that he winds up kind of spearheading that heroic mob um, was just kind of a whiplash, especially since that resolution happens at the very end. I just hate this movie. <laughs> Can I, I wanted to like it so bad though. Do you know what I mean? It's the kind of movie, I, I, I like the idea of it. I like the idea of this holy trinity of movies and the image of Angel, and then I watched it. It was pretty crushing. Well, should we get in to some of the horror, maybe a bit of Angel? <laughs> she knows where I'm going with this, so. Um, but I want to start a little bit more with like the working class. So we've talked about the judge. The judge is kind of on high. He's got his wig, he's got the government, he's doing his thing. Um, I found a really interesting quote from a a writer by the name of Rob Young who describes Blood on Satan's Claw as an eruption of terror in a community of working people. Um, And I think this is where, and it's, you know, this has been talked about a bit in folk horror, is that the horror emerges from the folk. The folk are something to be feared. This is where we get into this conservative analysis that this is a conservative film. Um, And it goes into, like, the fact that the bones and the remains are found in the soil that Ralph is, you know, plowing. Um, and, and that the possession kind of goes into two young women. There's the bride who we've talked about, and she is already sus from the outset because she is a farmer's daughter and she is marrying above her station. Side note, as I was watching this, I was like, there is a much better movie that follows the bride going to the insane asylum with her one fucking claw and just like <laughs> running the shit out of that place. I want that maybe make it happen, Blumhouse 824, anyone, oh, call careful me. what you wish for. <laughs> Listen, we're all going to have to sit through the Exorcist sequel, so I'll take, I'll take a better Blood on Saints Claw sequel. Um, and then we get to Angel, and this kind of corruption of the natural order. So when we think of the bride, she is con- she's corrupting this natural order by marrying above her station. Angel is about to start corrupting the natural order by being in a position of power and maintaining a position of power. Um, And when we get to Angel, like she is such a big part of the iconography of folk horror. And I think there is such a fear of this film of power being given to the powerless and depicting them as monsters incapable of controlling this power. And they're not... These women, the bride and that angel, they're not reproducing labor as in making babies to fucking plow the fields. They are upending systems and structures to create new ones. Yeah, I definitely got a very strong sense that there aren't a whole lot of career options available to these people. Like, even if you just kind of look at the educational system they have in place, like, basically the kids are in this room with this reverend, and, you know, they're not learning to do anything particularly skilled it's just like behave be here i guess or else i don't know uh kids of all ages are kind of stuck in there and it sounds a lot like the ontario public school system (laughs) i feel like you get a, a strong sense that there aren't a whole lot of options 
for the future and, and and certainly something that did actually reach me emotionally was Ralph and his mom and how his mom just like lost all of her children was like yeah he passed <laughs> Sorry. one less person to help with the farm you know like that was yeah. that was the working class at the time and uh and so here's Angel and you get the sense that they're not I also found it interesting that the priest wasn't especially threatening you know, my parents have stories about going to school, like, with nuns and getting the shit kicked out of them. And yet this reverend was just kind of like, eh, 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 and they were like, <laughs> let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the biggest cinematic ick moment I've had possibly in the last 10 years. I was, are we going to talk about that? Yeah, we're going there. Um, so I felt uncomfortable watching the seduction scene with Angel. And then I went to my old friend, IMDb Trivia. There I learned, Linda Hayden, the actor who plays Angel Blake, was 17 when they shot that. Should have handed out barf bags. It gets better. Worse. And I just want to say, like, there were periods where this film had the scene of that seduction scene where she is fully frontal as an underage actor. Uh, they actually physically darkened the scene to avoid an X rating. Right? Not to be thoughtful and sensitive and all that other kind of shit. Um, and I'm like, oh, oh, good. I'm so glad we do remasters where we just bring the fucking light up here. That's great. Um, and as I mentioned, that was sarcasm. Oh, God, I'm so terrified of being quoted on Twitter. <laughs> oh, Elon's going to follow me. Oh. Um, I won't let him. Right. Uh, but as I mentioned, so Angel Blake is this major part of ho like horror iconography, folk horror iconography. And she has a child, a child who has been overly sexualized. And in the same IMDb trivia, um, there is a quote from the actor who plays the reverend or the priest, whatever the fuck he is, part of the clergy. And he writes, or he said of Linda Hayden, who was 17 at the time, she was a total professional with a refined sense of the erotic unusual for her age. Yeah. Curvier words have never been fucking spoken. I read that and threw my phone across the room. I'm not joking. I was disgusted. I like immediately was like, Andrea! Oh, ah. yeah. It's rare that research will make you like a movie less. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. It was really, like, it's really disconcerting. And I know it's like, there, there, it's always couching, like, it was the 70s. Like, fuck off, Humbert Humbert. Go get a fucking hobby that is not working with 17-year-old girls who do not have a parent on set or someone to just fucking protect them. It's so infuriating. I just have the most vivid mental image of what that set must have been like. And I can just imagine someone asking her once, hey, you good? You good? Like, just take it off. And they were like, consummate professional. She loved it. She wanted to do what she begged us. Like, <laughs> I just, this whole narrative just enters my brain. And that's not even getting to the accusation. Yeah. And so this is like, she is, Angel Blake is a realization of the conservative fever dream of, uh, fever dream of women. Yeah. She is attractive. She is powerful. She is sexu sexual and she is vengeful. She is another femme fatale-esque figure designed by men to be feared by men. And it is disgusting. It is disgusting. It's gross because you see the image of her and you want to venerate her as this Thomason feature, as the farmer's daughter, uh, the innkeeper's daughter, rather, in, um, in The Wicker Man, you know? Right. Slapping the walls all naked and shit. Get those tits out. Girl. She was a hero in my head before I ever saw the film. And as much as I'd and like will, to see her that way, I feel like she's a pawn and then eventually a victim. Well, and I think the thing is, and to be fair, like Linda Hayden is very good in this role. Okay. I think that's what has kind of led to her not only, like, she's quite beautiful, the way it's shot. Like, this film is beautifully shot. And so that gives it a lot of stuff. She's also capitalized on this role throughout her career. She's, she's gotten gigs doing spoken word, recite. Like, she's a horror icon, and she's working it. So I hope she's still getting paid. But we can also be critical of things we like and, and don't like. So that's, that's where we are. And we all know. We're all here. We're all here. You guys know what we do. So we're all in this together. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I hate that. I hate it. I fucking hate it. It feels good to say I hate it. Because I, I also feel like part of the reason I was so shocked 
at my dislike of blood on Satan's claws, I was like, why is everybody celebrating it? Like, I feel like I've heard people say that it's the weakest of the trilogy, but I've never heard someone say it's the conservative, uber problematic, pervy, redheaded bastard of the trilogy. Um, so I'm really excited to uh, to say that uh, at a festival that uh, that welcomes such a line of inquiry as Salem Horror Fest. Yeah, every time we come here, it's like. How much can we do to get kicked out? <laughs> We're testing our limits, like the teenage rebels that we are. To King James. <laughs> the third. All right, now what? I want to talk about how this film felt like a PSA. You guys know what that is, right? A public service amount. Uh, a, a public service announcement is like a short bit of propaganda content to teach us all to be little good boys or girls. What's so funny? I just love you. Uh, I love you too. Oh my God. That's nice. Um, so this came up a little bit uh, when I was when I was doing that that interview for Rumorg. I interviewed Andy Pasiorek, who is a um, a, a literary expert. Uh, in terms of literary folk horror. And he identified the 60s and 70s to be what Bob Fisher dubbed the haunted... <laughs> it's the haunted burp. <laughs> They're all haunted. The haunted generation. And, um, and the haunted generation... It's slippery. So Bob Fisher was a writer who noted that his 1970s upbringing was imbued with a sense of melancholy and a vague, unsettling disquiet. And I was kind of like, okay, go on. And basically he wrote he wrote an article about this sense for Fortean Times magazine. Any Fortean Times fans in here? It's a bit more I supernatural. Saw one. I saw one fucking hit. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's, great hat. That is a great hat. Second best in the room. Uh, it's there are other hats in this room, Andrea. It's it's a magazine that is a bit more supernatural, a bit more interested in UFOs and ghosts and cryptids and, and like less horror fiction. But it's an excellent magazine, really well researched and well written, and I like it a lot. Um, anyway, he wrote an article for Fortean Times in 2017, and it received such an, a response from people being like, yeah, haunted generation, yeah, I feel that way too, that it became a regular column. Now, he has a podcast now, by the way, I will link all of this in the show notes. It's mostly devoted to hauntology, and basically he's, he's kind of obsessed with the idea that growing up in the 70s, you know, you had TV and you had media, but you didn't have the means of recording it, and so a lot of that is lost. And it took me a while to kind of bend my head around that because I was born in 82. Don't do the math. I was born in 82, and there are so many. I can go to YouTube and see the cartoons that I saw. I can go back and read the Bernstein Bears and experience that Mandela effect. I, I have nostalgia for the old stuff, but I also still have access to it because we had VCRs and we recorded movies off TV and I could see all the commercials for the toys that we had. The 1970s did not have that, people growing up. And so they have these vague, fuzzy memories of content that they consumed that informed them. But of course, memory is not reliable. And the older you get, it just gets grainier and fuzzier and, 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 and harder to remember. And, and part of his experience of the haunted generation was was PSIs. And uh, in the UK, PSAs. sorry, PSAs. PSAs. Thank you. I'm fucking up because in the UK they were known as PIFs, public information films that the government commissioned, short films showing during commercial breaks. Do you remember those when you were growing up? Yeah. I feel like I'm it's... very young. <laughs> <laughs> I just had my 21st birthday. <laughs> the PSA that I remember the most was like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and it oh. was it was taken was from it the, the glass. Yes, the, the glass point of view one. of the dashboard, and you're that driving along, and then all these bleary pint glasses, these foamy bleary pint glasses, go in front of you until you can't see, and then it's like smash. That fucking stayed with me. That still stays me, and the one with uh, Rachel Lee Cook. When she's got, sorry, originally Coke, when she's got the fucking pan, and she's like, this is your brain on drugs. And then I'm like, yes, yeah, she's all that. <laughs> yeah. 
So like uh, those do make an impact and I get it. And, uh, and and what Bob Fisher was arguing was that a lot of these PF, PIFs and PSAs of the time, which we can't see anymore because, because they're lost, and I'll get to that in a moment, had to do with satanic panic, had to do with stuff that was evil. And that stuff kind of just wormed their, they were like, did that really happen? Did I really see that? And there's no evidence of it. And the reason there's no evidence of it, apparently, um, there is a burgeoning field of studies on PSAs and PIFs. Yeah, PSAs and PIFs. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, and I'm going to link an article in the show notes if you're interested in this, because I was fascinated by it. I was like, oh, yeah, those things. Like, I remember those Canadian Heritage TV spots, and, and I almost feel like those were more formative than the content itself I was consuming. So it's a, it's a, it's Do you remember when a Canadian invented basketball? Basketball, the phone. I I smell burnt toast. <laughs> Listen, the couple Canadians in the audience, we're living right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are eating them. Uh, so Anne Brush in 2016 noted that this was an emerging field of inquiry, that the impact of these films, um, and that these PIFs were orphan films. There were no clear copyright holders. There was no interest, either commercial or cultural, to preserve them, and so they disappeared. They weren't considered artistic enough for like academic in, not artistic enough for academic inquiry, and not fun enough for people to look back on and be like, "Oh yeah, that was a good time." They told me not to be a Satanist. Cool. But scholars are taking a renewed interest, and so when I think of this haunted generation, when I think I, I think about how things change in retrospect, and this I, I'm not going to try to defend this film. I'm not going to try and defend the themes that are in it, but I do think there's something to be said for those grainy memories when you look back, like just even looking back on my own life and being like, "Wow, that was inappropriate. That was assault. That was something worse." And, you know, Blood on Satan's Claw is an exploitation film from the 1970s, and uh, it hasn't held up, but we still need to look at it, and we still need to talk about it. And as much as I prefer that faculty of horror celebrate horror that we love, I think it's important to problematize horror that I don't hear anyone problematizing this film. That's why we're here. <laughs> we're here to kill all your horror boners. And drink champagne. Uh, you doing that? Let's talk a little bit more about Satanic Panic, guys. For those <laughs> of us... <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> Could you imagine just one person in the audience was like, No! <laughs> I just fucking laughed? I could. Please don't do it, but it would also be kind of badass. Um... As a refresher, I'm referring to the moral panic of the 1980s USA, where baseless conspiracy here. theories... Yeah, that's here. Oh, here. <laughs> Usually we just shit talk you guys from our side of the border. <laughs> Down south, where they're backwards. No, this is where we are now. Um, uh, baseless conspiracy theories circulated about satanic cults committing mass child abuse and murder. It was on talk shows, it was tons of PSAs. Paul Korup has a great collection of them, and Paul Korup and Kayla actually put together a book. Fantastic book. Yeah, a spectacular optical book called Satanic Panic. Yes. Yeah. Allison, yes. I don't know if they're available for but sales. Still. Allison Lang, she's right here. Can we give it up? Yes! yes. yes. And uh, looking back culturally, this was a time where... Um, Stop whispering, Allison. <laughs> this was a time where single parents were really struggling uh, to find proper childcare. And they were struggling with uh, dual-income families. Single moms were really struggling. And so there was a lot of anxiety about giving up your kids to some institution, what is happening to them. And then also at the same time, a lot of institutions were being like, hey, child abuse happens and we need to take it seriously. There need to be laws protecting children. And so all of these things kind of like coalesced beautifully into this moral panic. Now, um, this phenomenon wasn't limited to the 80s. I want to note the earliest example in recorded history of satanic panic was in the first century, where rumors abounded that Jews were abducting and murdering Christian boys to use their blood in rituals. Yeah, blood libel. Cool. Um, Which is re-emerging thanks to QAnon. Neato. And it popped up again in the medieval period, and in the medieval period we're currently inhabiting. 
So Blood on Satan's Claw was before the satanic panic of the 80s, obviously, but it was brewing. Anton LaVey opened the first Church of Satan in California in 66. Alistair Crowley was on the cover of the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967, etc. McCarthyism had happened. The anti-cult movement had happened. The development of social work, like everything was in place for this perfect storm of satanic panic and blood on Satan's claw got held up with that. And the most interesting thing I pulled out about my research, I thought I knew everything there was to know about satanic panic. Did you know that the moral majority was like an actual organization? You guys all knew that, did you know that? I didn't, but I'm Canadian and I have health care, so <laughs> I thought I the moral majority in this country, you make bad jokes. I thought the moral majority was like an abstraction. Yeah, I did. Like too. you would say the common people, like a the stuff folk. like that. The folk. The folk and the folk horror. Um, but it's not. And I, I would love to go into it more, but we just got a signal that there's ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to. I think we need to. I think we need to move it along. We end in ten. We write. <laughs> Listen, they can't kick us all out. But we won't hurry I actually don't have a whole lot more to say about satanic panic. You know what it is, but I just want to kind of dovetail a little bit into the conflation of witchcraft and Satan because they are separate things. And so, why are they being lumped together? Why are they being lumped together in pop culture? And why are they being lumped together? in this film. Basically, what's happening is that anything that isn't good Christian stuff is witchcraft and it is Satan. It is evil. And it's something that was a foundational tenet of the Satanic Temple. If this is your first time in Salem, you need to visit it. It's definitely worth visiting. Are you, what the fuck is this? <laughs> we have 10 minutes. <laughs> but I'm talking, okay, you talk, stop. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I still have more in my glass. Say stuff. Uh, no, did you make your point? Did I? <laughs> I feel like digging up behemoth in the field suggests this weird conflagration of um, paganism and Satanism as if they're the same thing, but we know that they're not. But they do share the same pedigree of being a really easy scapegoat for just being something that is unchristian and therefore Yeah, it's a very good. like quick and dirty like, ugh, those people aren't Christian, look at the fucking devil, look at the fucking witchcraft, blah, 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 and it's all bullshit. Like, it's all fucking bullshit. And I think to Andrea's point, when you've got the satanic temple here in Salem, like, they're just like amazing trolls like amazing political trolls who are like you want to put this on us fine fine watch all the lawsuits we're going to file against you yeah. and that's like that's incredible that is like the hell raising kind of quality i want in my cults yeah and um but yeah I, are you cool if i go here yes please Okay, so I wanted to talk a little bit, as you talk about Satanism and witchcraft and all that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the black mass in this film. Not the terrible Johnny Depp movie. <laughs> that was a well Congratulations title. to the two people who actually knew what I was talking about <laughs> that joke. Um, but, um, so the film actually climaxes, and it's properly called the black mass within the film. And I found this amazing quote, this is, we are truly, this is Freaky Friday. I literally just Googled, what is a black mask? Just so I had like the baseline. And I found this. What the fuck? Were you just implying that I just Googled my research? <laughs> All I can see is that guy just fucking nodding. Who <gasps> nodded? I still wound up with more. See ya back. <laughs> no, 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 but just in the, like, I just Googled it. I didn't actually do, like, a deep dive into, like, a JSTOR and, like, Black Mass, blah, 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 blah. But I actually found this incredible quote about Black Masses, and it is, um, a Black Mass is a travesty of the Roman Catholic Mass in worship of Satan. I just love that, a travesty. And uh, so the Black Mass, apparently and historically, were attempted in France because, of course, the fucking French. Um, and then you're getting into uh, Gilles de Ray, you're getting into like all of that kind of stuff that was happening. And, um, and for me, when I look at Blood on Satan's Claw and I think about this Black Mass at the end of it, there's so much of the inversion 
When we think about an inversion of a mass, it's that it's being led by a woman, it's being led by angel. And this seems to uh, just cause like a whole kind of discontent because against angel is the judge, an old fucking white dude who is like just this really good guy, he's just doing good things, he's just fucking hanging out, just flirting with ants and not doing anything about it. He's this good man who's just in service of the folk. And the folk are being corrupted, so he is going to stop it. Now, I also found, well, I actually did, I did a lot of, I spent a lot of time trying to look for something. I, mean, I don't know if anyone wants to contradict me, but I could not find anything in Satanism or witchcraft or anything about fur on someone's body. Um, and so it, was, it, it doesn't seem to have any kind of origins, except as like a weird kind of shorthand within the snow. If you've got fur... The best I could do was pubic hair and oh, as an emergence of fertility and, and puberty. But again, I think I'm thinking about it more than the filmmakers ever did. Well, because where I got to with it, and I think that's actually a great reading, um, it, it's that it's um, kind of into a de-evolution. Like we're, we're de-evolutionizing back into gyms, back into animals, this animalistic quality of humanity that we are so scared of going back to. And the judge with the government and the, poli- uh, and the parliament system emerging represents modernity. And mar- modernity is good and modernity will save us. And the, when you go into like the woods with this hot chick with her group on tattoo eyebrows, like it's gonna be this scary thing that happens to you. But you go to the judge with his legit wig, and it's you know. so. I, I we should wrap this up. We are wrap, we are wrapping it up. I know. Oh, actually, I'm okay. It's my it's my last bit. It's my last bit, and then we're gonna do some announcements. Okay. Um. So Andrea. Yeah. You know my fondness for creating terms. Yeah. <laughs> Do I? I you know I love inventing shit. Okay. Um, so I developed this thing called folk violence in response to folk horror. Um, so if folk horror takes place in the often idyllic rural settings uh, and traumatizing these settings and the folk within them, I think it's notable that these rural idyllic areas are not beyond Andrea's burps, but they are beyond the scope of the state. In this case, the judge. Here we have a sense that the judge is kind of going from town to town. He gets there when he can, and he'll fucking deal with it when he can. And then the horror within this film is so much about Angel Blake and the shit that her cult, let's just call it a cult for the sake of that, uh, wreaks upon it, and that is rape, it is murder, it is assault. We kind of, I don't know purposely, but like that is that rape scene is just really fucking upsetting. And I actually felt kind of unnecessary. And it was really like, I didn't like it. And I read stuff that like it was very unrehearsed. And I was just like, this isn't cool. Like this 70s filmmaking bro shit is not about it. Um, but it is so like, this is awful. This is horrible. Look at what these folk do with their violence. And this thing, so if we think of like rape, torture, murder, when it's state sanctioned, it's fine. When it's in the name of government, when it's in the name of a monarchy, when it's in the name of colonialism, it's fucking fine. Don't worry about it. But however, when you situate it within the folk, this is this this kind of film is affirming a good versus bad violence. When it stems from the folk, it is bad and it is wrong. However, when it happens from the state, don't worry too much about it. Or we are doing it in your best interest. And I think, and we danced around the witch a few times, Robert Eggert's The Witch, um, a few times, and I think it is such a great example when we talk about folk horror and when we're really critical of it, because with a couple really simple inversions, you can create really progressive folk horror. Rewatch The Witch if you haven't recently, and it's like a couple simple tweaks to all of the tropes we're talking about today, and it's like, bam, feminist fable for the fucking ages from like a cis white dude. Like, hail Satan, they can do it. Um, And I think it's really important to note that because it is easily done. And when we think about Blood on Satan's Claw, it's, I just want to be really clear that we aren't indebted to these stories, even though they are part of our culture, they are part of our history as horror fans, but we have accepted them. 
to a certain degree. They are part of the Unholy Trilogy. They are part of all of this. They are part of film history, and that's fine. But we can keep questioning them. We can keep saying this isn't okay. It isn't okay that she was 17. It isn't okay the way they treat people in this film. It isn't okay the way the patriarchy controls things. That is part of critical thinking. That is part of being a critical fan. This is what we are all about, and I think it's so important. Yeah, and that's exactly the note that I really want to wrap up on, is that in, in so far as I would like to divorce this film from that trilogy in terms of its main takeaway and what it's saying about the world, I think that there is value in stuff that is problematic. I think, it, I, I talked about PSAs and PIFs. There was content out there that was specifically designed to hammer home these conservative values. And it's still a folk horror film, but it doesn't stand up with the rest of them. And, and let's all... <laughs> Unite in, 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 in making that a thing. We're not going to run into the fucking pitchfork. No, we are not. I hated that. I really fucking hated that. Yeah. She yeah. was cool, and that's not cool. Anyway, we're wrapping up. Um, we have a couple announcements. I think she had a question. Oh. Okay, we don't have time for questions. You can ask us in the lobby, though. Okay. I was all a ploy to steal her wine that nobody noticed. That's how well I did it. That's how well I did. That's how good I am. Anyway, wrap it up. Sorry. I feel so, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry? She got scapegoated. NBD. Am I your favorite between us? <gasps> <laughs> this is my favorite question. Can you like me or Adrian? Wrap it up. Let's go. The, the correct answer is you like both of us equally. Okay. Um, very quickly, um, I've got a Brexit lecture coming at Link. Do you? I've got a Brexit lecture coming up on May second. I'm doing it live online for the Miskatonic Institute. Uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes, but it's going to be available for rent for like a month afterwards. So if you want to hear me talk more about England and Britain and how it's fucking falling apart, uh, tune into that because it's it's been very depressing to put together. <laughs> Um, what else? I'm still making Roomwork Magazine all the ding-dong time. I am streaming on Twitch. All of those links will be made available. And yeah, just to thank you all for being here, uh, coming from far and wide, possibly, to hang out with us in Salem in the spring. It is wonderful. I am really loving being here this it's season. It's so great. It's so great. And uh, next episode. Next episode, you guys. Alex said this, and I was like, there's no way we haven't done this. She totally before. thought we'd done an episode on it. I still kind of secretly do. We'll have to <laughs> we'll have to compare notes with you guys after the fact, because apparently we haven't done child's play. <gasps> yes! Right? We're taking you through a weird British shit, and now we're just gonna come back and have some. Fun. Back to America, back to working class America, back to single mother America and a little redheaded bastard doll. What happened to my train? I don't know. So <laughs> um, thank you so much, we're Kay, for having selfie. us. Huh? We're gonna do oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, we're still. <laughs> Until you run into your own pitchfork, office hours are Open our minds to what we see